David Shoemaker and Kaz host The Masked Man Show every week, breaking down everything in the world of professional wrestling. Check out The Masked Man Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, friends. I'm Michael Bauman. I'm the host of The Rear MLB Show. I'm here to talk to you about COVID-19 vaccines. They're starting to become available to the general public, and getting vaccinated is the first step to getting back to all the things we miss most. Going back to baseball games, for instance, or if you're a fan of certain teams, going to your favorite restaurant to eliminate the temptation of turning on the TV and watching your team lose. I have close friends whose kids have grown up in the past year and a half. Last time I saw them, they were basically potatoes with limbs, and now they're running around and talking and expressing their personalities, and I'm excited not to have to miss any more of that than I have already. The more people get vaccinated and the sooner it happens, the sooner we can start traveling again, having parties, weddings, everything we've missed out on for the past 14 months and counting. But even more than that, I'm relieved to be able to go to the grocery store without worrying about catching a deadly disease or worse, passing it on to someone else. It's hard to put a price on that peace of mind. It's okay to have questions like, should I get it? Is it safe? Should I wait? But you should get the facts. Get the facts at getvaccineanswers.org so you can make an informed decision. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. You got on my case when I didn't give you the little prompt last week, so I'm making sure to to give you all the help you need this time. I need instructions, Mike. Uh, I'm also joined by Ringer staff writer Ben Lindbergh. Say hello, Ben. Howdy. Do you need the training wheels, or are you okay to just no, respond to your own? No, I'm good. I understand okay. how human greetings work. All right, good. Uh, so let's start with a slightly more mystifying bit of, of human interaction. Uh, Zach, did you see the curious call at first base in the uh, Brewers-Marlins game earlier this week? I did. It was curious as one word for it, I suppose. Befuddling. Uh, I don't know. Bad. Just start coming up with synonyms for atrocious, terrible, the worst. Can you take just give us a quick rundown of, of what happened in first base because I watched that video four or five times before I figured out what the problem actually was. So essentially, there was a slow roller up the first baseline. And as any of us who watch baseball have seen many times before, the pitcher picked up the ball before it rolled foul and lightly tossed it to first to get the out. That was uh, Zach Godley was the pitcher. And then Marty Foster, the first base ump, said no this base runner is safe because Zach Godley interfered with the runner Isan Diaz as he was running up the first baseline and he did not interfere. It didn't even come close to showing as much, but Marty Foster believed that Godley interfered and, and called him safe for pitchers interference. And I like you, Mike, like this isn't even one where you can watch the replay and see, well, maybe the ump sort of saw it this way and I can kind of understand where he was coming from, even if it was wrong. This is just flat out wrong, and there's no part of it that suggests to me, okay, I understand where Foster's coming from. 
Yeah, we've seen a lot of runners run to first base in our time, and I don't know that I've ever seen this exact call. I guess I sort of understand what Foster was insisting that he saw, though I still don't understand why he thought he saw it. So, I mean, technically, if if we're going to get technical about it, the best kind of correct, of course, obstruction, <laughs> I think the rule book says, is the act of a fielder who, while not in possession of the ball and not in the act of fielding the ball, impedes the progress of any runner. So given where the runner Isan Diaz was and given where Godley was at the time that he tossed the ball, it is technically true that Diaz had to slightly divert from his path in order to get around Godley. But Diaz was like way inside the the baseline. I mean, he is allowed to run there, I guess, but he still it looked like he went out of his way to draw this call in a way he would not have had to deviate if he hadn't been so far inside. And then there's also the fact that Godley had already gotten rid of the ball. The ball was basically at first base by the time that deviation occurred. So even if he had actually impeded his progress, he would not have been safe. It was totally a a routine play where he would have been out by several steps. So really, it was kind of like letter of the law if you really stretch and try to interpret it that way. But clearly not the spirit of the law because there was no impeding of Diaz's progress here that actually prevented him from making it to the base. I don't even know. I think even that's being a little charitable because yeah, like, I'm trying Diaz, to be here. <laughs> yeah. Diaz was out already by the time uh, he got close enough to godly where that would have become an issue. Uh, it's, I don't know. Like we see bad calls all the time and that's part of the game, even with uh, instant replay and, you know, I'm fine with that because umpiring is a hard job. And a lot of these plays involve like a level of, of depth perception that is just maybe depth perception, not the word visual acuity. Uh, ophthalmologists write into us and tell, tell me actually what what the correct word is here. But it requires a level of, of vision that is beyond what we ought to expect from normal human beings viewing complex images in in real time and so i have a lot of sympathy for umpires but this is like you want to talk about getting in the way of a play it it makes it hard to to get you know to defend umpires when some of them just go out of their way to to insert themselves into the game where it it's not even like this isn't even a let the let the guys play kind of thing that you you'll see in like hockey or basketball where they just put their whistles away like this is drawing attention to to the umpires for no reason that I could really perceive it, it, I don't know like I I don't want to throw out superlatives but in terms of calls that I understood the least at the time they happened uh this is up there I think all sports not just baseball but especially baseball need some sort of common sense uh addendum to the rule book where I don't think any single player on the Marlins, Diaz included, would have complained that he was obstructed if this call hadn't been made. He would have just gone back to the dugout and not argued at all. And I think this goes along the line of like what we've seen since the institution of the replay review system, where a runner slides ahead of a tag and then pops off the base slightly. And before we were able to slow down... Uh, replays to like one one thousandth of a frame uh to see that he pops off the bag momentarily nobody on the fielding team would have said oh he was actually out because of this we see it in the nba when a player a a defensive player hits the ball out of bounds and it slightly grazes the offensive player's fingertips as it goes toward the sideline and before the introduction of replay nobody would have ever argued oh that was actually out on the offensive player i think we just need like a common sense interpretation that yeah if this happened in a a neighborhood game somewhere nobody would make this call and yeah this isn't a neighborhood game but those th- that same philosophy should still apply yeah we're conditioned not to accept that anymore like this is the you know i'm going to do a huge bong rip and put on the tin foil hat but like we're we live in a very black letter legalistic uh, society where if if it's not technically against the rules, then it's OK. And that doesn't leave a lot of room for, you know, I agree with you 100 percent. Like I've been saying that umpires need to have the power to to have some kind of like, no, this is ridiculous or come on, guys, knock that off. This is not what the rule is supposed to do power. Uh, but, you you know, imagine 
if a game was was if a game result was overturned based on something everybody knew was bullshit at the time and the umpires called it bullshit and decided, you know, to do jury nullification on it, that would uh, you know, we'd have I don't know, might be good for us because there'd be no end of hot takes about it. But I think that would be even more outrageous to your average viewer than calls like this. So, you know, I, I wish, you know, I wish we uh, operated in a society where something like that was possible, but I'm pessimistic about it. Maybe the solution is more replay because this play was not reviewable, right? Because it was a judgment call, which is Ugh. always a, it's a strange demarcation that we make the judgment call. Aren't all calls judgment calls to an extent, but certain ones are just not reviewable. It seems to me, I mean, some people are wary of extending replay even more, but I'm the pro replay guy. I mean, yes, there are definitely these edge cases where replay actively makes things worse and slower. But I do like getting the calls correct, and I think that we do get more calls correct, and we do away with some injustices that would be done by some truly terrible calls that we all know were wrong because we can watch them immediately afterward. So I don't know whether replay would have fixed this, whether if this had been reviewable, Foster or you know Foster's uh, colleague in New York would have said, I don't know what you're talking about. That was clearly not obstruction. But that was not an issue in this particular play. And to their credit, I guess, if we're going to give them any credit, they did get together and talk about it and did not change their mind. Does that make it better? Getting your story straight. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if that does make it better. I mean, usually I'm, I'm pro, you know, being willing to review it and talk to your colleagues about it. But I don't know. Maybe the other umps just deferred to Foster because they didn't have as good a view as he had. Although clearly that view didn't help him here. Yeah, you know what? Personality type is not generally amenable to recognizing admitting mistakes right after you make them. It's a personality type that turns you into a professional rule enforcer. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't know if it was just that he was wearing the mask on the lower half of his face, but like the attitude (laughs) with which he made this call and stood by this call. The mask and the glasses and like the, the... the black jacket, like it all looked very sinister. Yeah, it was very like highway patrol, like you just got pulled over and there's this guy with jack boots or something. It was very much like that <laughs> attitude that. where like you look like the Punisher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's transition from Ben's, oh man, everything's a judgment call, man, (laughs) to something that's absolutely empirically quantifiable, and that is offensive production. Uh, Zach, do you know what the league-wide batting average is right now across Major League Baseball? I do, because it's in our outline. Good man. Why don't you tell us what the league-wide batting average is? So the league-wide batting average right now is 232. Uh, Can you tell us the last year... Major League Baseball had a league-wide batting average that low. I cannot because it's never happened before. Yeah, uh, I was, you know, I've been preparing really since we realized that the juice balls were all that was standing between us and offensive oblivion. I've been preparing the, oh, let's go, you know, let's uh, be ready to go back to 1968. And uh, I'm afraid it's worse than that. Yeah, so the league-wide batting average right now for all of the triple slash categories is 232, 309, 389. That is the lowing batting average ever by five points. The previous low was in 1968. Uh, it's the lowest on base percentage since 1968. And while the slugging percentage league wide is a little higher, historically, relatively speaking, it's still the lowest since 2014, which is right before the ball was juiced. And it's not just because pitchers are, retur- uh, are returning after not hitting at all in 2020, take them out. And the league-wide batting average is still just 236, which would be the lowest ever. The league-wide slugging percentage is still below 400, even with pitchers hitting removed. Um, And I think we're at a point where strikeouts have risen so high and batted ball results are, relatively speaking, worse than they have usually been. Uh, And I think all of the trends are just kind of dovetailing and providing very little run support and providing very few hits. And it definitely is influencing the game and player statistics and lots of different teams. Yeah, there are two different issues here. There's what's happening when the ball is put in play. And then there's the fact that the ball is not being put into play very often. So the league-wide strikeout rate is now 24.5%. 
That is obviously the highest ever. We've been saying it's the highest ever for, what, 15 consecutive seasons now. Not only is it another increase, but it's also one of the largest increases, which is sort of scary when you think about how we're on, you know, 15 or, or is it 16? Is this the 16th now consecutive season with an increasing strikeout rate? And still, it, it seems like the pace of the increase is actually also increasing And yeah, that is partly the pitchers. Pitchers have struck out in 47.2% of their plate appearances this year. That's up almost four percentage points from 2019, the last time they hit regularly. I love that this is where you're going, by the way. Like all (laughs) of the things that, that, like, part of me, you're the face of so much of this to to me from not banning the shift to pitch design to all, you know, all the, the stuff that's making the strikeout rate go up and you're like, Oh, the problem is the pitchers right after Zach said the problem's not the pitchers. Well, all the position players are hitting like pitchers. Yes. The problem is partly the pitchers and I will no, continue it's not. to point that no. out. Like, yes. Oh, it is such a, it there's is such a small percentage of the, of the, the <laughs> offensive population. It's not the, Pitcher strikeout rate going up to what'd you say was 47% is Mm -hmm. not a big deal when position players are striking out at, you know, that 24.5, that's huge. We're not like, I I think we're really underrating what a big jump that is from, from not even living memory, like 10 years ago. Like I was going back through fan graphs to try to see the, what the last year was that, uh, 24.5% would have led all starting pitchers in strikeout rate. And unfortunately, Pedro Martinez and or Randy Johnson ruined that particular thought exercise. But like, if you're a starting pitcher 15 years ago, you have a 24.5% strikeout rate, you're getting Cy Young votes. And that's just like every Tom, Dick and Harry off the street now does that. Yeah, I think we talk about strikeout rate as a percent basis uh, because that is like more accurate uh, in terms of judging how good a pitcher is. but all you need to look at is the K per nine rate, which might be easier for the average fan to understand. We are now above nine strikeouts per nine innings. We are above one strikeout per inning. This is the first time ever. And just since 2011, it has increased from 7.1 to 9.1. So we've increased by two strikeouts per nine in just the span of a decade. I think that might even be easier to understand. Just the average team strikes out more than once an inning now. And that has never happened before until the last decade. It had never come close to happening. And the, I don't know, the light bulb moment for me for this trend was this was like seven or eight years ago. I was listening to the Will Leach podcast and, and Joe Sheehan was on it. And he said, we're a couple years away from, uh, from strikeouts being more common than hits. And I was like, and like, he was saying this, like, well, obviously this is going to get to a point where baseball is going to do something about it. And like, I remember hearing that and being, awestruck and like that moment is come and gone and nothing's happened like you know nobody's done anything to counteract it like the horses have left the barn and boarded the ship which has sailed and i you know we're i don't know like this is going to come off like complaining like this is the end of baseball like we're we're to use the fifth metaphor of this rant uh you know we're the the boiling frogs like we, we're all getting used to it and this is just what baseball looks like now i'm just staggered that nobody's decided to you know nobody's looked at this and thought this brand of baseball has less offense it has less action and it puts less uh less emphasis on speed and defense and contact so maybe we should tweak the rules or the equipment to try to counteract that like they do in every other sport on earth Yeah, well, they're clearly thinking about it and deploying these experimental rules in the minors and in independent partner leagues, but it's not the sort of thing that you can impose unilaterally, or if you can, then you have to worry about how that will impact CPA negotiations. And there's just general, I think, reluctance to change anything because of fear of fan backlash or because the league is sort of stuck in its ways. But I think they are moving toward actually doing something about it. And really, how could they not at this point? I heard Steve Goldman make this comp the other day, but Dave Kingman's career strikeout rate is 24.4%, which is (laughs) the notorious all or nothing slugger of the 70s and 80s who led the league in strikeouts three times. The league as a whole is now striking out more than Dave Kingman did. (laughs) I never realized what an (laughs) ominous way to to start a sentence Dave Kingman was. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I, I talked about pitcher hitting before, but you're right. The main problem is pitcher pitching. 
pitchers are too good. They're throwing too hard. They're getting too much spin, too much movement. And it's just impossible to hit them from this pitching distance that we've had since 1893, I think. So not to go into my whole move the mound back bit because people have heard it before. I did just want to mention, though, the results on balls in play because that's a big part of this, too. And MLB, you know, set out to deaden the ball. And we have this weird ball this year where exit velos are higher than ever. So the ball is is leaving the bat harder than ever, but maybe because it's smaller or perhaps because the the outer components of the ball changed in some way that has increased the drag, the ball is dying a little more. But the ball is still pretty juiced. I mean, historically speaking, if you compare to the same point in previous years, the only year with a higher home run per fly ball rate and higher home run per batted ball rate is 2019, which is the all-time high. So the ball is still flying pretty well, but what we're seeing now is a lower BABIP. That has really as much to do with the low batting average that we've seen as the fact that the ball is just not being put into play. The BABIP this year is 283, which is down you know, 10, 15 points from where we've been accustomed to seeing it over the past several seasons or really over the past few decades. And all of the difference is actually on ground balls. I was just looking on Baseball Savant and just looking at the stat cast seasons that we have. BABIP on line drives, BABIP on fly balls is the second highest during that span of several seasons. But BABIP on ground balls is by far the lowest, even lower by 10 points than last season, which was also the lowest to that point. So batters are hitting 228 on ground balls put in play now. And I think maybe we're at the point where we do have to say, okay, defensive positioning and the shift is actually having an effect here because after years of saying, oh, the shift doesn't really have that much to do with it, you're looking at the wrong thing. And I think that's still true to an extent, but it's also true that the results on ground balls are really worse than they've been in a long time. And it could be that teams are shifting more optimally. They are shifting less frequently against right-handed batters now, which all the research publicly has shown actually has helped hitters. So it seems like teams are learning that lesson. And maybe we are getting to the point where the shift and defensive positioning is actually contributing to this. So we might have to admit that Rob Manfred, you know, targeting the shift as a culprit here. Maybe he wasn't right when he started doing that, but maybe he's come around to being more right now. We just need more batters like Ronald Acuna and Byron Buxton who can beat out average ground balls to the shortstop. And then that uh, ground ball Babbitt can go up. Mike, go ahead, because talking about banning the shift, I'm sure you have a lot to say. I was going to say maybe the problem is because errors don't actually contribute to batting average. The problem is Fernando Tatis hasn't actually gotten that shoulder surgery after making 10 errors and 62 chances this year. I think uh, one of the... Well, of course, we have the caveat that it's still early in the season and offensive numbers tend to rise as the summer months come and it's warmer and the ball flies more. But I think at least for now... This isn't just affecting when you watch a game and see lower scores, for instance, or just a lot more strikeouts and fewer hits. I think it really is affecting how I analyze players in the early season. Someone like Matt Chapman is a good example. Matt Chapman right now has basically a 300 on base percentage and a 390 slugging percentage. And I look at Matt Chapman and think, well, what happened to him? You know, why has his bat suddenly been silenced? And then you realize, no, those are league average hitting numbers. And when you add in the fact that he plays in a pitcher's park, he's slightly better than average, despite those really underwhelming surface stats. And I'm a good sabermetrician. I know to look at league and park adjustments, but it still is throwing me for a loop in this early going to see someone with a slugging percentage that starts with a three and not immediately think, well, this guy's bat has disappeared or see someone hitting 240 and think he's better than league average. It's, it's a very strange environment. So one thing that the going back to the uh, strikeout rate, like that has to do with with increasing velocity, increasing uh, movement on breaking pitches. I don't know if you guys saw the the gifts from Shane McClanahan start the other day where <laughs> we've got a lefty throwing one oh one with arm side run like yeah. I don't know what hitters are supposed to do with that. And pitchers have been the early beneficiary of of technology. I think it's fair to say. And you know, the other day there was. Uh, a whole uh, Twitter blow up about this. And Eno Saris from The Athletic said uh, that pitcher or hitters will get their chance, essentially, that we're still learning how to, uh, you know, how to improve 
biomechanically through or through um, high speed camera work and stuff like that, how to improve hitters the way we have pitchers. Uh, and he thinks they'll they'll catch up. And I'm I don't know. I obviously don't know enough about that to to agree or disagree. But it strikes to me that so much of hitting is, is reactive that that might be too much to ask to just wait for everything to, to balance out. So Ben, like, you know more about this than than I do. I'm curious where you fall on on the idea of whether the hitters will eventually catch up on their own or whether they need help. Yeah, definitely agree that they've been behind thus far and that each new advance, each new technology seems to favor the defense first. And I wrote an article last month about how there are new improvements in pitching machines and that we're better able now to replicate the actual pitch movement. And so having that might help hitters, but then there are other ways in which it might help pitchers too, to have those machines and be able to test out certain pitches without actually throwing them in the game just to see what it would be like. So each time hitters get an edge, I think pitchers get another edge. Like we have this Hawkeye technology now that is giving us all of this great biomechanical data, or at least giving it to teams, not us out here in the public. And so now pitchers are, I think, more able to optimize their mechanics and add velocity and perhaps deception. So each time I think there's a, a new generation of this technology, hitters maybe can catch up with the last generation, but then pitchers get some other edge. So I don't know that the gap will ever be completely closed, but I do think there are things that hitters can do to make use of those tools to catch up a little bit, but I don't think it's going to close the gap. I think hitters need help. I think that's been the case really throughout all of baseball history. Like we're focusing on the last 10, 15 years here. And yes, these trends have really intensified during that time. But really, the strikeout rate has been rising basically since the beginning of baseball, more or less. And every now and then, MLB, someone needs to step in and slap pitchers' wrists and say, no, you have to throw from farther away now. No, we're going to lower the mound. No, we're going to change the strike zone. And you have to do that or you just get the runaway freight train of the strikeout rate. And that's what we're seeing now, I think, exacerbated by analytics and pitch design and the way that teams are constructing their rosters now to really go all out towards strikeout pitchers because they realize it makes sense. So you have this case of misaligned incentives where hitters and pitchers are doing the things that get them paid and teams are doing the things that help them win games. And none of those things are necessarily done with fans in mind. And that's where MLB needs to step in and say, we are going to balance the scales here. And I've said this a hundred times on this podcast and written it a hundred more times in articles, but I think it bears repeating that there is one consistent non-cyclical statistical trend across baseball history and that's that strikeouts go up like mm -hmm. effort from pitcher usage uh to to home runs to stolen bases to runs to batting average like everything else is cyclical except for strikeouts and you know it's been going on 50 years now that since we had some sort of drastic pushback for for the hitters and so you know absent that like there's pitchers are, are going to continue to be ahead do you think, Ben, you wrote before the season about the quest for a perfect pitching machine? And do you think advances in that sort of technology could help? Because we talk a lot about velocity, and velocity, of course, matters. But what really has been pushing offense down isn't the 97-mile-an-hour fastball. It's the slider that goes off of that 97-mile-an-hour fastball. There are uh, some problems with this data. But if you look, for instance, league-wide this year at the average batting average by pitch type you get a 205 batting average against off-speed pitches and breaking balls and a 253 batting average against fastballs and of course there are caveats like the count that those pitches are thrown in but batters kind of break even against fastballs it's the sliders and the change-ups and the curveballs that really uh, do the most damage, especially now that pitchers have realized I don't need to throw my fastball 70% of the time. If my slider's my best pitch, I should throw it more. So do you think more exposure to that sort of like 92 mile an hour slider will help batters more than just catching up to like the top end velocity? 
Yeah, I think it'll help. I think training in that focused way where you're actually facing in-game stuff instead of just traditional batting practice, which is just let's lob a meatball in there from some 60-something-year-old coach, which really... funny if it was literal, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) Yeah, well, I, I just think that, you know, that will help to a certain extent, but I think you're really bumping up against the capacity of hitters to really make contact or, or make good contact with these pitches when guys are throwing so hard and there's so little reaction time and the movement is so extreme, unless we can just clone Nick Madrigal, which would be wonderful and every team can get one, then I don't know really what the, the solution is with the current rules and the current dimensions. I, I think you just have to do something to change those dimensions, whether it's the dimensions of the strike zone or the dimensions of the mound and the infield or the dimensions of the ball and the behavior of the ball. Like something clearly needs to change and just deadening the ball if they go further in that direction without making any corresponding change then that's just going to get us to an even worse place because you're going to get escalating strikeouts and even worse results on balls and play like helping pitchers by deadening the ball is not what we need to do and yes I understand that maybe it would influence hitters to go with more of a, a contact oriented approach and a lot of people you know you look at like Twitter replies and, and people are constantly saying it's the three true outcomes you know all or nothing hitters you know they're just swinging for the fences every time and yeah things have evolved in that direction but they've evolved in that direction because that's your only chance at this point and yes it's it's partly because the ball has been lively and it's been advantageous to get it in the air but really the problem so much of the problem is making contact and Yes, that's partly because hitters are are not just trying to, you know, roll it over and, and put one in play weekly. But I really think the problem here is more the pitchers than the yeah. hitters. The pitchers I, are too good and and hitters cannot just adjust, you know, when people say, oh, just hit it the other way. Well, you try doing that against Shane McClanahan and trying to not only make contact, but place the ball in a certain place. Like if they could do that, I think they would be doing it. And we know now that they're not doing it and they haven't really moved much in that direction. And I think it's just because it's too much to ask. Yeah, it's that logic, if you want to call it that, drives me absolutely nuts. First of all, because it's the continued desire to blame structural problems on individual choices but also like do you want like here i'm gonna be the the nerdy stats blogger who says do you watch the games like (laughs) like, you can't you know you were talking about shane mcclanahan shane mcclanahan's nobody like he's some kid who just came up he's not the cy young you know he's not lance lynn you know like (laughs) or shohei otani or, or some superstar like I just don't know how you can get get the bat on the ball. I think the problem is here's what I would do. I'd ban the slider, not just because <laughs> for the reasons that that Zach said. I think it's an ugly pitch. I think it's my le- it's my least favorite pitch. It's so it's crude. There's nothing like there's there's like a subtlety to a change up and something like beautiful about the the arc of a big curveball and hey, sliders just it's basic. It's it's the basic man's off speed pitch and and I'd like to be rid of it. Really attacking the 2015 Mets. I don't know what Bobby has to say about this with Relax. the, the we're, Worth we're and gonna Slider. Get, we're going <laughs> to get to praising the 2015 Mets in a second. The Worth and Slider is the reason that the league is hitting 232, <laughs> according to Michael Bauman. It all, it all goes back to the Mets. The Mets are in everything. Um, I don't know. We could, talk, uh, we could transition after you guys seem unprepared to deal with the truth I'm spitting. Uh, Zach, a minute ago, when you were talking about the perfect pitching machine, I thought you were trying to do one of your segues. I thought you were trying to, to talk about Jacob deGrom, who's leading the league in Fangraph's war right now. Like, the the gag about Mike Trout leading the league in war means that it's real. Well, it's not real anymore because deGrom is back ahead of him. Yeah, I mean, here's a, another 2015 Mets point. I think the comparison between, like, who is the best player in baseball adding pitchers to that conversation. I, I never think of them that way uh, at first blush. And I am someone who like would vote for pitchers for MVP. I've advocated for this in the past. I think I said DeGrom should have won a couple years ago. He but, should have won a couple years ago. Yeah, but I think what's fun about DeGrom, and I will let Ben answer this point, is that he is also hitting this year. And that is one of the reasons that his war leads the league, because he has positive hitting war as a a pitcher with an above average batting line. So Ben, what say you? 
I think it's nice that some Met is hitting if it has to be DeGrom. <laughs> I think, you know, he, uh, he has to do a better job of pitching to the score clearly here because the score is usually zero in the Mets column. So he has to do a better job of allowing zero runs every time. But he's been doing a pretty good job of that. Like the other day, his most recent start when the Mets lost one nothing to the Red Sox and he gave up one run. He had some quote about how like all of his pitches were flat and he couldn't put anything where he wanted it to. He sounded like he just got, you know, torched and he gave up one run in six innings with like a few hits and I don't know, no walks and nine strikeouts or something like anyone else would be thrilled with that start, but not for DeGrom. He's just, you know, he's on another level now, even for himself. And like he entered the season as my very chalky Cy Young pick, obviously, but he has uh, gotten even better seemingly. And he's throwing slightly harder than he was, which like worries me a little bit. It's almost like the cinder guard, like, dude, you already throw like 98, 99. Like maybe that's hard enough. Just, you know, back off a little, take a little off. Maybe you'll be fine. Like DeGrom at this point, he just, he throws pitches in the strike zone. It's not even like he has to get guys to chase. He's just throwing so hard and with so much incredible movement that he can just kind of pound the zone and no one can make contact with him. So he's just dominant. And the Mets squandering so many of his starts is really uh, embarrassing. I guess it leads to a lot of fun facts, which are unfun facts for Mets fans. But seeing that the Mets are like, you know, under 500 when DeGrom starts and it's like, what are you guys doing? I've got a fun fact for you, Ben. Okay. All right, Shohei Otani's OPS plus this year right now, uh-huh. one sixty five. That's awesome. Yep. Like that's that's like do that over a year, you're gonna get I don't know top five MVP. Uh, Jacob Degrom's OPS plus this year, uh huh, one eighty three. Oh, pretty good. Who's the real two way star? What is that? Thirteen plate appearances or something? I don't even know if it's that many. <laughs> <laughs> good for him. Yes, exactly. Thirteen plate appearances. Uh-huh. So you know it's but. But Mike Trout was leading the league in war, so it's real. Helping his own cause, as we're obligated to say whenever a pitcher hits. You mock. I, I actually like that that baseball cliche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's nice that we get to use it because pitchers so rarely do anything positive at the plate. But yes, it is. There were uh, multiple pitcher homers this week, Ben. I know, right? Adrian Hauser. That was a bomb and, and another one, too. Yeah, so that's uh, not something that really has been in DeGrom's skill set. Like, he hasn't been the bumgarner Grinky that everyone holds up as the, the hero of pitcher hitting, even though they are truly terrible compared to any position player. <laughs> but this year, you know, just because he's getting better at everything, I guess he's decided that he has to hit now. So maybe he can give some tips to his teammates. Yeah, the the thing about DeGrom that strikes me just watching him is, and this has to do with the, you know, it's the whole package, the hitting, the, the command, like it all looks so easy. Like he's such a good athlete. He's such a natural like his motions are so natural in the way that even Syndergaard who, who can hit, you know, is, is a good athlete himself, but it's different. It, DeGrom, like there's like a gracefulness to the way he is on the mound that makes me, you know, I wouldn't bet on any pitcher throwing any number of miles an hour, not getting Tommy John surgery over a long enough timeline, I guess. But I'm optimistic about DeGrom because like it, there's just nothing really strained about the way he plays. It's it's all so fluid and natural. And yeah, I think in addition to him being like a one man league wide offensive crisis, like he's so good this year. Um, it, it's he's fun to watch because he's like he's so self possessed in terms of like body control and, uh, you know, I think we're we're starting to to appreciate. And, you know, there are other pitchers who have this ability but none of them are throwing 102 every start and you wrote about his hall of fame chances uh this week right mike and i think this is a really important season for that purpose because in mlb history the only pitcher to win three cy young awards and not make the hall of fame is roger clemens and he is not outside the hall of fame because other issues yeah exactly (laughs) and on the other hand, as you mentioned in your piece, there are a number of pitchers who have won two and not made the hall. Brett Saberhagen, Johan Santana, uh, Tim Lincecum, Corey Kluber will probably come up short. So I think DeGrom right now is kind of in that Kluber-Lincecum camp where he was extraordinary for a few seasons but didn't quite have the longevity to make the hall. But even if DeGrom like, doesn't pitch until he's 
you know, in his mid forties, like Randy Johnson, even if he just wins one more Cy Young award, I think that might tilt him over the peak versus uh, bulk line that you need to get into the hall. And I think just one more Cy Young award, he would probably get in, especially considering the changing makeup of the voting, the voting body that they might be more, uh, more committed to rewarding someone who is just that, uh, transcendent for for you know a half decade or more yeah i'm i was about to say he's not gonna post an 051 era all year maybe i should know better than to make uh assumptions like that but let's say he does something like his first cy young season where that's 217 innings of 170 era um 11.2 strikeouts per nine you know he'll probably strike out more batters than that just because the offensive environment's changing that quickly but that like that takes him from Johan Johan Santana territory to like Sandy Koufax territory. And I don't make that comparison lightly. Like it's, it's a different level of, of dominance. It's not just, he was the best pitcher in baseball for three or four years. He was like a step change, like a standard deviation ahead of everybody else for four or five years. And as long as he has any kind of hang around phase, I think that'll put him over the top. And I think, you know, it would be, it would be unprecedented for somebody to start that late, um, and, and one make the hall of fame. I mean, I think it's already unprecedented for anybody to, to pitch the way he's pitching right now. And Santana should have had at least three Cy Young awards. <laughs> you just have me going back over his stats in his baseball reference page. That 2005 season. Bartolo. Bartolo won with the 21 and five or whatever it was win loss record, even though Santana had like twice the war that he did. He was really robbed. I don't think that third award, I don't know if that would have made the difference because he fell off the ballot like right away, which is kind of a crime. But his uh, peak well, was all really, those guys did. Yeah, like that's that's kind of what surprises me. Santana's not the only guy with that resume who fell off after after one season. Like David Cohn did, uh, Saberhagen did. Saberhagen, who's better than I realized watching, having seen only the '90s part of his career first time around. Um, Doc Gooden, to a certain extent, fits into to that category. Like guys who end up with you know, 50 to 60 win or, you know, 50 to 60 career war, uh, with a couple dominant seasons and one or two Cy Young awards, uh, like they not only don't make the hall of fame, they don't come close. And so that's what makes DeGrom hitting this inflection point. So interesting to me is that there's like, there's no gradation between Johan Santana and Sandy Koufax. It's just either you're that guy or you're not. And there's absolutely nothing in between. And hopefully the standards will change a little bit for pitcher workloads and careers. You know, now that pitchers are just not going deep into games or going deep into seasons, like even Santana, who was pitching, you know, 10 years ago, like he had seasons of 230 plus innings pitched, which like nobody really gets to anymore. So after we get past, I guess, the crop of, you know, Sabathia Verlander, maybe Scherzer, like a few guys who were workhorses by the standards of their era. I think maybe voters will be more accepting of someone who had a high peak, but not that long a career because the innings totals are just not going to be as big as they were for earlier generations. Yeah, I think I think Roy or yeah, Roy Halladay was the mm -hmm. um, the guy who sort of um, blazed that pale. I got to blaze that. Wow. <laughs> blazed. Blaze that trail. Sorry, I was trying to look up John Smoltz's career uh, innings total. Um, that's like 3,400. Yeah. So like, I don't know, Smoltz is a weird case because he was a reliever for part of his career. It had Tommy John and, um, but, you know, he was, he still had like a 20 year big league career. So maybe he's not the best example, but we're, you know, 3,000 innings. I think it, it's still the, the benchmark where you have to be Halliday or Pedro Martinez or um or Koufax or you don't get that call back um but you know maybe that maybe that will change I'm interested to see because you're right Ben we're really not close to getting to that generation of pitchers who who have these shorter careers and have these lighter workloads um reaching the ballot like you know we're not there now and, and we won't be for a few more years This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles. 
because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Zach, you wanted to revive a bit that I think was pretty successful for from last season. Uh, but why don't you uh, tell listeners what we're in for right now? Well, success is uh, an interesting barometer because I think the first time I did a half take segment, the very next day, the MLB season shut down because of that's the not, novel coronavirus. That's not your fault. I'm not <laughs> blaming you personally for the novel coronavirus. I think that's just an unfortunate coincidence. But for our new listeners or our returning listeners, half takes are kind of what they sound like. They are takes I feel, but only halfway. Um, and I like to explain what the takes are and hear how befuddled they make my co-hosts. So the first one I have, I think I'm going to escalate. I have three today from the ones I believe most to the one I believe least. And number one is that this season, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. will post a better offensive season than any that his father ever had. And this is not to say that Vlad is going to have a better overall season than his father because his father was an outfielder instead of a first baseman. This is not he to was say that kind of an outfielder by the end. <laughs> that of his arm, career. though, uh, <laughs> yeah. This is okay. not to well, say let, that we don't need to yeah. to relitigate Vlad Senior's defense, I guess. But he did have an arm. And this is not to say that Vlad Junior is going to be a better player over the entirety of his career than his father, who was a very deserving Hall of Famer. But if you look just at offense, the best season that Vlad Sr. ever had was a 160 WRC+. plus. That was when he was a 25-year-old in 2000 for the Expos. That means he was 60% better than league average. Vlad Jr. right now is up at 220, so he has a lot of room to fall. Obviously, he will fall, but I think the collection of all of his skills is coalescing. He is walking more than he is striking out. He is hitting the ball in the air, which is allowing him to access his prodigious power. And I think he has been consistent enough, and there's reason to believe it. He lost weight over the winter. It's not like this is just a fluky month out of nowhere. That I believe Vlad Jr. will have better than a 160 WRC plus this year. What say you? Ben, why don't you go first? What, what do you make of best shape of his life? I kind of buy it. I this is a this would be at least a half take for me. I think because yeah, we've seen the sprint speed improve, which uh, seems like it's probably a result of the best shape of his life status. So he's now like basically an average runner according to sprint speed, which is a big improvement. But beyond that, like he has all the offensive skills, and it seemed like the last couple of years. His big problem was that he was pounding the ball into the ground, so he was hitting it hard, but it was turning into grounders. And this year, he's raised his launch angle a little bit, and he has all the other underlying skills. And he's not going to match the surface stats of Vlad Sr., because I'm just looking at that 2000 season, and Vlad hit 345, 410, 664, which, like, my... 2021 eyes calibrated to the league where the hitters are batting 232 is thinking that's got to be better than a 160 WRC plus, but the offensive environment in 2000 was wild. So Vlad Jr. does not have to do that to best the WRC plus mark, but he has the plate discipline that his dad didn't have. And not that his dad was like whiffing wildly, like he walked almost as often as he struck out. He didn't strike out a lot, even by the standards of his era, just because he made contact with everything, even if he was swinging at pitches way outside the strike zone. 
But the fact that Vlad Jr. doesn't do that, that he swings at more hittable pitches, pitches that would be hittable by the typical hitter that he can drive, I think gives him really a better baseline offensively. So if not this year, then I could certainly see that happening because again, Vlad Jr., just turned 22 in March. So it seems like he's been around for a while, but given the youth and given the offensive skill set, definitely would not surprise me at all if he surpasses his dad, at least on a single season basis. Yeah, you had me from the first sentence of your of your half take for two reasons. One is that uh, little Vlad is, I think he's always been a really smart hitter, a really skilled hitter. And we're seeing him adjust to big league pitching for the the first time. And like, you know, he's been, been very open about all the effort that he went into uh, this offseason, not just in terms of conditioning, but in terms of, of, you know, learning and changing from changing his approach. And I think he's like, we're seeing the first big improvement of his career. And, you know, he's been awesome so far this year, so far in the 2021 season. The other thing is big Vlad, Wild overrated. I, don't, I have no problem believing that the son will surpass the the father. That 2000 season, one of my favorite bits from that stat line. I mean, obviously, it's incredibly impressive, uh, but nine stolen bases in 19 attempts for, for Big Vlad. <laughs> they, don't, they don't let him run like they used to. I'm surprised you went with that so quickly, not just because it's a Hall of Famer we're comparing him to, but for Vlad Jr. to get a 160 WRC plus at age 22 the only times in the last like 50 years that that's happened are Mike Trout did it in 2012, 2013, and 2014. Bryce Harper did it when he won MVP in 2015. And Juan Soto did it last year. Those are the only players to hit that threshold at such a young age in the last uh, 50 years since Cesar Cedeno in 1972. So yeah. that's a, a pretty impressive run to like have the three of us expecting him to reach that level over a full season I'm, now. No, you, we're not expect is a big word this is a bit we're playing along with it sure. but you know you mentioned those three guys i guess trout is is it is in his own category but in terms of of polish and power at a young age like he was absolutely viewed in that harper and soto territory when he was uh when he was a teenager so i you know i don't think it's unreasonable to to uh for that to be in the realm of possibilities for him to match those players so half take number two let's zoom out from one player to a whole league. My second half take is that not a single American League team will win 95 games this year. This has never happened in the division, the sixth division era, which is since 1995. This, well, obviously not counting like the 2020 shortened season. Uh, this has happened a couple times in the National League. The Diamondbacks led the National League with just 90 wins in 2007, and the Astros and Cardinals tied for the National League lead with 93 wins in 2001. But over that whole stretch, the lowest number of wins by an American League leader is 95. I predict they will go under that number in 2021. Uh, it's easy to buy that take given the way the standings look right now, which not only is there no team really running away with the American League or the National League for that matter, but all the, but the standings are kind of upside down where the teams that are out in front right now, I don't necessarily expect to stay there. Betting against an entire league is tough because like, I wouldn't bet on the Yankees specifically to reel off like a 23 and five run, but would I bet against them or the Astros or the white Sox or the Rays or the blue Jays doing that? I think at least one of those teams does it and gets to 95 wins. Yeah, this half take is supported by the playoff odds at Fangrass, which currently projects only the Dodgers to win 95 games or more. Of course, playoff odds tend to be pretty conservative just because you don't forecast any team to have great luck or great health or to have everything go their way. And usually one team at least does have things go their way. But that hasn't been the case so far early this season. And the Yankees would have been the obvious candidate to do it. And they are 11 and 14 as we record here on Friday. And I still think they're a great team and, and they're going to be very good the rest of the way. But, you know, playing under 500 in April does kind of lower your ceiling, I think, a little bit. So it's plausible, but I think, like Mike, I would probably bet on the field to produce one team that gets there. Yeah, I think the reason I am offering this half take is in part because the standings are upside down 
as Mike suggested. And it's also because there isn't necessarily that one team that you expect, like when the Astros would go 18 and one against the Mariners to push their win total up. A team like the Orioles is easily the worst looking team in the American League East, but they're already three and three against the Red Sox. They're three and four against the Yankees. So you're not going to have the Yankees, presumably anyway, win the next 12 games against the Orioles to push their record all the way up. And besides that, the rest of their games are against Tampa and Boston and Toronto, all of whom are at least decent. So I think there's enough of a muddle uh, in the middle of the standings that you're not going to see a team run away with that kind of stretch that Mike talked about, of course. It's possible a team like the White Sox has underperformed its run differential so far, and maybe they'll run off and go 18 and one against the Tigers. But this is my half take. All right. Hit me with your your last half take. All right. The last half take is the one I least believe in, but it now oddly connects with the 2015 Mets. Do you have any idea what player I'm going to mention? I'll say that this is an American League only edition of half takes. Maybe I'll do the National League in a week or two. What 2015 Met now playing in the American League is having an interesting season thus far? Was Jed Lowry on that team? Steven the answer Matt's. is Matt Harvey. <laughs> My half take is that a playoff hopeful will trade for Matt Harvey at this deadline. He is on a one-year, very cheap deal after signing uh, a minor league contract with a major league option this offseason. Through five games with the Orioles, he has a 4.26 ERA with an even better FIP. It's 3.29. He has allowed very few home runs. He is not walking anybody, and he hasn't done this against bad competition. He has had good starts against Boston and the Yankees and the Mariners who have otherwise looked good. I think Matt Harvey now has enough left in his arm. The Orioles will be able to flip him for at least a, a lottery prospect at the deadline. Or they call up Rutschman and Big Mike and make a run themselves. Uh, I'm less interested in in our reaction to this than Bobby's reaction. Uh, those people are suckers. To those people, I would say, do they even watch the games? Because it doesn't look great, guys. Um, he allowed I was talking- one run in six innings against the Yankees the other night. Five strikeouts, three hits. League-wide yeah, looked- trends, Matt Harvey. Here's exactly how it goes. To prove against here's, New- here's exactly how it goes every Matt Harvey start. And I'll tip my cap to Jake Mintz, who we were talking about this while the Yankees Orioles game was happening, his last start. It's the first inning, he looks pretty good. Second inning, he scatters a couple hits or puts puts a guy on base. Third inning might give up a solo home run here and there. And then it's really the fourth and fifth inning where he has the blow up inning. A walk, a base hit, and then a three run home run. And that's how it's just gonna be. That's how it's been since he's left the Mets. And it's because he just doesn't have quite as much life on each individual pitch, so he's still pitching like an overpowering guy and not exactly overpowering anyone anymore. <laughs> Especially that, given that like he throws Harvey. 93 now. So like compared to the rest of the league, that's like a league average fastball. Yeah, I like to think I'm, I'm something of an expert in not looking like you had as much life as you once did. Uh, and that is definitely the vibe Matt Harvey gives off. So to support the, that statistical point you made, Bobby, uh, the third time through the order this year, Matt Harvey has faced 20 hitters and allowed a 1.237 OPS. So that isn't great, but you know, send Matt Harvey to the Rays, who might yep. need some pitching help, allow him to go three or four innings in kind of a, you know, a piggybacking game or some sort of bulk role, and I think they could use him, certainly as much as Michael Waka. That is exactly the point I was going to make. Trade him to the Rays, piggyback him with Josh Fleming, step three pennant. Put him in the pen. Just let him air it out for two innings. Have him be the the playoff, you know, October late inning flamethrowing reliever. That'd be a lot of fun. Remember when Tim Lincecum did that for the Giants when he could no longer start, but he came in and had that phenomenal postseason out of the bullpen? I think, Mm -hmm. you know, so many different roles you can use Matt Harvey, you know, just trade for him and see where he fits best. Matt Harvey, an inner circle ringer MLB slack Hall of Famer, I have to say. He would he's like the when we put together our Cooper sound, he's definitely gonna be in the the Babe Ruth Ty Cobb first class of five. So I'm so glad we were able to talk about the 2015 Mets so much and the 2021 Mets because you know that could be our segue into the unnamed Weekend preview segment. I can't sing like Mike. Go ahead. I, that was a weak. <laughs> no, effort. that was wonderful. I'm not doing it. You were 
<laughs> so close to producing some kind of melody there. I don't want to. Uh, I, I gave up halfway I through. It. I didn't want to embarrass myself any further. Now, it's singing is is like mo- it's mostly about enthusiasm. And you had more enthusiasm than, frankly, I thought you had in you. I, I didn't realize you had that club in your bag. It was one of those instances where I started the sentence and realized halfway through, oh, I'm going to have to do this if I really want to pull the transition off, aren't I? Yeah, that's how I talk all the time. Um, so, Zach, what's what's your playoff series of the weekend? Uh, well, not playoff series of the weekend or, because yeah, it's not playoffs. It's a series between uh, sub 500 teams. It is the Mets and Phillies because every team in the National League East right now has a losing record. The Marlins are the only team with a positive one dif- run differential, which really tickles my fancy. Uh, but the Mets and Phillies are squaring off this weekend. Presumably one of them will have a winning record by the time uh, the weekend is over or at least be guaranteed to be back at 500. And uh, I don't know. These are two teams that should be competitive. The uh, other teams in the division like Atlanta should be competitive as well, too. But we haven't seen it thus far. The offenses aren't hitting and you can't win games if you don't score runs as both the Mets and the Yankees are seeing. I have no idea what to make of this. I thought four of those five teams were going to be good. And the I thought the Marlins were going to be like at least fine. And you know, maybe they've just been playing each other so much that they're they're beating each other up. But the Phillies have had all sorts of weird offensive issues. The Braves have had a couple injuries. I don't know. It's it's just a mess out here. Speaking of messes, my weekend series to watch is the Twins versus the Royals. And these teams are just like mirror images of each other now. I guess the the Twins are the funhouse mirror version of the Royals. They have uh, inverted records, right? So the Royals are 15 and 8. The Twins are 8 and 15. This series will be played in Minnesota. And I don't know what to make of this because the Twins were my pick to win this division. But now that these records are reversed, like look at the playoff odds. And now that we're almost into May... That actually matters, and their playoff odds are almost identical now. The Twins have a 25.9% chance to make the playoffs, according to Fangraphs. The Royals at 24.9%. they are less than a percentage point apart in division series, in division winning odds. And, of course, the, the White Sox are off to a better start, and thus they're ahead of both of these teams. But, really, the Twins and the Royals find themselves in sort of the same boat playoff odds-wise. And also, though, I have noted... Base runs wise, if you look at the underlying metrics and the expected records, you know, based on the actual performance (laughs) other than the wins and the losses, the Royals and the Twins have the exact same base run records, 12 and 11 each. It's just that the Royals have outplayed theirs by three wins and the Twins have fallen four wins short of theirs. So I guess that is good news if you're a Twins fan. And I saw Mike Axisa make this point at CPS Sports that most of the Twins' losses, it seems like, have come in non-regulation games, or I guess they're regulation games now, but so many of their losses have come in either seven-inning games or extra-inning zombie runner rule games, and so that is maybe more frustrating that they have lost a lot of their games because of Manfred Ball, but maybe it also makes you more optimistic that as the season goes on, they will actually play better, so... I'm still taking Twins over Royals for the rest of the season and for the full season, but it's a lot closer than I would have anticipated. So the Twins could actually make up some of the ground that they've lost this weekend at Target Field. Yeah, my question about the Twins is at what point do their fans grab their pitchforks and storm the MLB offices because they are 0-5 with the runner on second rule and extra innings and Like, that's kind of interesting because you would think those games would ultimately be coin flips and you would expect teams to be around 500. Of course, with 30 of them, you'd find one team way outperforming and one team way underperforming. But I wonder how how long this can go. Like, can the Twins get to 0-15 in extra inning games? 0-20? I want to see how long it takes until they get a win. You think Twins fans have storming and pitchforks in them? (laughs) Because I don't. Like, I love Minnesotans because they're mean and sarcastic, but they're not a violent people. If they had it in them, they would have used it by now because they haven't won a playoff series (laughs) since the early 2000s. Their football team is named the Vikings. They can pillage. Would not be very Midwest of them. Having seen the 
having seen the the Vikings uh, playoff fortunes, it seems like they don't have much pillage in them either. Uh, 38 to seven. Um, my weekend series, my weekend series that I'm looking forward to is the University of South Carolina at the University of Mississippi, two ranked teams in the SEC, both uh, fighting for for playoff or for uh, NCAA tournament position, fighting in the middle of the standings in the SEC. Ole Miss ace Gunnar Hogland is going to be back on the mound after missing last week's series against LSU. Uh, so watching that because there's no Dodgers Padres this weekend and it's either college baseball or the NFL draft. You know, that's the the only thing we actually watch here is Dodgers Padres. Well, I enjoy the name Gunner Hockland. <laughs> so Miss, I, said, I said this the other day. Ole Miss is the Alabama football of good college baseball names. They went to the College World Series a few years ago. I think they had three different spellings of Austin on their roster. Uh, it's an abs. They also had a pitcher on that team named Wyatt Short, who was five foot eight. So that's <laughs> score one for nominative determinism. You could not come up with a comparison that would go further over my head than analogizing a college baseball right. team to a college football team. Because right now I have to explain football, <laughs> Mississippi and Alabama to you. And we're going to be here all day. Uh, all right. I think that's a good place to to wrap up the show. Uh, be sure to follow us on Spotify. Uh, tell your friends. Follow us and the Q on the Ringer Baseball feed. Uh, thank you, Zach. Until next time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Jacob DeGrom, Marty Foster, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.